Hello, and welcome back to Worst Church Ever, the world's worst progressive Christian podcast. What makes us the worst? Well, we'd say it's at least a few things. First and foremost, it's a joke. It's a joke about expectations, for one thing. It's a sigh of respite and relief, a swipe, we admit, at all those pastors and elders and church growth experts who think the telos of 2,000 years of stumbling Christian tradition is, in fact, their fatty hipster church or their well-funded intellectual machine. It's a little curve in the dirt, one half of a pissed-off ichthus, a not-so-inside joke about what we think of so-called religious professionals who believe God can only be God when they've made everything just so. It's also a bit of a prediction. If you're a fundamentalist or an evangelical, you may think we're the worst just by virtue of what we say and how we say it. You may even think we're damned to hell. While we would disagree on that latter point, believing that we are in fact the worst may be one of the few intellectual ideas we have in common. But we're also predisposed, though not predestined, to have snarky thoughts about other progressive Christians. Or maybe we're just sick of how everybody talks ourselves included. For these reasons, we've been chopped, but we'd love to have a meal with Alton Brown, Jet Tila, and Ted Allen. You can learn more about the what's and why's of our podcast in the first few episodes, which we posted back in May. That's 2021, in case you're from the future. Speaking of the future, we left off in Genesis 19, and we're going to skip Genesis 20 today because everything we've said about the trafficking of Sarah in Egypt applies here in chapter 20 as well. Go back and check out the episode on tra- on Sarah as a trafficked matriarch. Um, Genesis 17, maybe? Uh, I don't remember at the moment. For more on that, in Genesis 21, we find Abraham and his family repeating another one of their terrible family traditions, in this case, banishing Hagar. You can check out a recent episode on Genesis 16, for a look at the first bite of that particular apple. In both cases, we see, yet again, the prototypical Genesis family prototypically responding to trauma by perpetuating it. These repeating motifs are repeated not because the writers or redactors of Genesis were hurting for material. The traumas in the stories are repeated because the characters are hurting, period. We've talked a good deal about the neuroscience and psychology behind the reproduction of trauma, and we've seen it again and again and again in Genesis. Genesis 20 and Genesis chapter 21 are no exceptions. Today, we'll look specifically at some of the language around the second banishment of Hagar, which this time, of course, includes her young son, Ishmael. Here's Genesis 21, starting in verse 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Now that's, um, oh, I'm sorry, that's verse, that's verse 1 of chapter 21. Now I want to say this, we've pointed out or tried to point out consistently where the English text is, is sort of hiding a differentiation of various names of God, and we've talked about different reasons for why different writers or redactors may be using different names for God. Uh, here, when we see the word the Lord, again, we're talking about Yahweh. The word Yahweh is what's really behind that text. So in this part of the chapter, it's Yahweh who is said to be gracious to Sarah and Yahweh doing for Sarah what he had promised. What was that? Well, let's pick up in verse 2. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age 
at the very time God had promised him. Now, there, God is rendered as Elohim. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God, Elohim, commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I'm going to stop there. You might recall from previous episodes that there's wordplay going on here with the name Isaac and the word laughter. Isaac means he laughs. And when mysterious visitors had come to the tent of Abraham and Sarah a few chapters ago uh, and told them that she would bear a son, she laughed. And the mysterious visitors who are either an angel or some other representative entity of God um, said, why are you laughing or why did you laugh? And she denies that she laughs. But here she says, God has brought me laughter and everybody who hears about this will laugh with me. So she's anticipating a blessing and that people will laugh this time, not in a scoffing way, but laughing with joy that a promise has been fulfilled that a formerly barren woman in a culture that prized maternity and, and the ability to bear children uh, so very greatly, has now uh, been able to do exactly that. So there's wordplay here with what kind of laughter, who will be laughing, and the name of Isaac, which again means he laughs. Chapter, er, sorry, verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now, that makes me wonder if Sarah would be less terrible had she not been trafficked twice by her husband slash half-brother. It's interesting to note that the word translated here as mocking could also be translated as playing or, wait for it, laughing. That's right, Sarah, who named her son Isaac, which means he laughs, is upset that Isaac's half-brother, who she already hates and who only exists because Sarah trafficked his mother to her, Sarah's husband half-brother, is laughing with Isaac. That is indeed a plausible translation of the word in question and a plausible rendering of the story. Sarah's hatred instantly recalls the way she felt after Hagar conceived and seemed to Sarah to look upon her, Sarah, with contempt or, if you like, haughtily. Perhaps a better translation is whatever the noun form of uppity is. Picking up in verse 11, the matter distressed, distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. All right, that's the end of verse 13. And I guess what I really want to say is this really is some kind of bullshit. A few chapters back, Sarah tells Abraham to get rid of Hagar. This is before Ishmael's born, but it's when Hagar has conceived. Sarah says, get rid of Hagar. And Abraham says, she's your slave. She's your issue. Do whatever you want with her or to her or whatever. In other words, you've already trafficked this Egyptian slave to me. I've already raped her. I don't give a shit. 
But now, oh, but now, but now there is a son involved. And so now this jackass seems to care. And on cue, God, Elohim, says, listen, buddy, don't worry about the boy and the slave woman. Just make your wife happy. Isaac will get the covenant, but I'll take care of Ishmael too. It's all good, brah. Of course, no one bothers to tell Hagar that everything's going to be fine until after she is banished, until after she hides Ishmael under a bush because she can't stand to watch her son die. Oops, Elohim, you're bad, I guess. Here's the text, picking up in verse 14. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? I'm going to stop right there in the middle of verse 17. When God, so far in this story, has been talking about Hagar to Abraham, he doesn't even say her name. God repeatedly calls Hagar the slave woman. But now the messenger of God is calling her by name. And it's interesting because back in chapter 16, Hagar calls God by a name. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees. Anyway, what is the matter, matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. So now, that's the end of verse 19. So now, the God who sees, which is what Hagar had called God back in chapter 16 when he delivered her out of the original banishment, now he is opening Hagar's eyes, and she sees a well of water, and she gives the boy a drink. And this, of course, all is symbolic of the idea that he will be sustained and nourished, and he'll be made into a great nation just like his half-brother. Verse 20 says, God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him in Egypt. The rest of the chapter involves logistics about Abraham's treaties and land deals with Abimelech, another king uh, who repeats the cycle of, um, of trafficking that we first saw with Pharaoh. And we also get a little bit about Abraham's status as a resident alien among the Philistines and some ideological bits about place names and so on. The end. No harm, no foul. Everyone lives happily ever after. Here's the thing. Abraham is a dick. Compare the feast he throws because little baby Isaac can eat the big boy crackers with the piece of bread and skin of water he gives to Hagar. Don't let the tent flap hit you on the way out, Ishmael. Oh, I can hear the apologist saying, oh, but God, Elohim here, not Yahweh, told Abraham it was all going to be fine. Those provisions were just temporary. So it's all good. And already I can hear people at their keyboards calling me a heretic on the Facebook page. But the problem with that approach is that the text doesn't give us any details about God saying what Abraham should or shouldn't be providing. You would think then that common courtesy or just human decency, perhaps not Abraham's strong suit, would dictate he provide a little bit more than he does. 
In any case, why not send your son off with a little more than, oh, I don't know, the bare fucking minimum? I like what Carol Ferguson has to say here. Quote, Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness with some bread and water, his final brutal child support payment, and leaves them to wander on their own. Bread and a skin of water are an especially callous gift in contrast to the great feast for Isaac that begins this passage. In verse 8, it is more of a token of guilt than a real attempt to provide for his son and Sarah's slave. That's the end of the quote. Anyway, you'd think maybe Father Abraham would, at the very least, clue Hagar into the fact that the boy will not only be spared, but greatly, greatly blessed. Even if he didn't give a shit about Hagar's trauma, and this is her second banishment after all, he'd at the very least want to reassure her and the boy that every little thing is going to be all right. Well, you can invent those conversations if you want to, but they're not in the text. And if you're listening to Worst Church Ever as a fundamentalist or a right-wing evangelical, you know you can't be putting words into the mouth of God. There are other things going on here, and it bears saying, this whole shitty game of you thought your son was going to die, but I knew better all along, that's about to come to another head. But this time, it's with the golden boy himself. In the next episode, we turn our attention to Genesis 22 and one of the shittiest stories in the entire Bible. This has been Worst Church Ever, getting worse with every episode, drawing more ire and having more fun, hopefully building some more fellowship and community around um, looking at these stories with fresh eyes through fresh lenses, not because we think we're so great. No, quite the opposite. We know that we're broken and traumatized people. And so far, we've looked at these stories through eyes of trauma. And it's yielded all kinds of new ways of thinking about them. At any rate, thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you again soon.